Live every weekday at noon, and then we are up as a podcast. This is MoneyWeb at Midday. I'm Jeremy Maggs. I've got 30 minutes of express news on developments here in South Africa and around the world, including interviews with business and political leaders, prominent newsmakers, and top commentators. It's Friday the 8th of December and coming up on our program, a high-profile social activist enters the political fray. The SANDF flatly rejects allegations of a torture unit. It's the political season of parachute visits to rural areas along with free-flowing promises. More on the 6,000 jobs cut post-office rescue plan and ESCOM will have a new permanent chief executive officer very soon. Bets already underway as to how long he's going to last. Let's start with this and a very warm welcome. The South African Post Office Business Rescue Plan has now been endorsed by creditors following the business rescue practitioners meeting with them. However, the plan does come with substantial job cuts. We're hearing something in the region of 6,000. I'm going to talk now to economist Davi Root on the impact and the response. And Davi, first of all, National Treasury allocating 2.4 billion rand to the post office, an additional 3.8 billion anticipated. How do you assess the financial feasibility and sustainability of this plan? Well, good afternoon to you. Well, that's what the business rescuers are telling us. They tell us that if they're going to use this more than the 2 billion that the Minister of Finance gave us, them already beginning of this year, uh, plus an additional 3.8 billion or 3 billion that has not yet been approved by the Minister of Finance as far as I know. And of course, the uh, creditors approved this plan. Well, if everything goes according to plan, then I guess there's a possibility of the post office being rescued or much smaller post office will be rescued. There will be much less left of the, of the post office. But I'm afraid, looking at the way that uh, there are ma- there's two major issues here. First of all, the Minister of Finance needs to approve this additional request by the business rescue practitioners. And remember, the finances of the state is in very, very deep trouble as it is. And secondly, I'm not so sure even if the post office can be rescued that it will really be uh, uh, survive for that much longer because as long as it's under control of government then i'm afraid you know like most other state-owned enterprises they simply come to an end and this is what's happening to the post office the post office is slowly coming to an end it's just dying and the private sector is taking over many of those functions by the post office so i don't think that the post office will really be able to to come back strongly so i doubt whether the post office will be able to survive really over the longer term and darby unions are unhappy as well and they is a general sense that we might be throwing good money after bad money. There are concerns around uh, governance and gatekeeping as far as these funds are concerned. It's all a very, very risky and dangerous mix, isn't it? Without a doubt. And like I I said earlier that state's finances is in very deep trouble, and I cannot overemphasize that. Uh, If you look at the fiscal deficit, uh, of the Minister of Finance, if you calculate that correctly, then the fiscal deficit will probably be close to 7% of GDP and not 4.9% that what the Minister has indicated. And we're talking about debt levels reaching already at record high levels and continue to go up. And we're heading for a financial crisis. We simply cannot afford it to spend 
collect one cent more uh, on, on, on the state-owned enterprises. Uh, if you look at what's happening to the other state-owned enterprises, uh, Transnet will need huge amounts of money. They already got an additional uh, guarantee of 47 billion. Eskom will need even more money. We can't just keep on throwing good money after bad. Uh, if if it if I had the uh, the, the this choice the, the the decision here, then I would have simply would have uh, liquidated the post office. I I don't think we should try to uh, save the the post office. So I'm wondering why then there is the fixation on saving this entity. It certainly isn't about jobs because potentially six thousand people uh, well, lose their livelihood. Is it all just about yeah. hubris and pride? Do you think? Yeah, it is about the ideology of the of government. We've got a government that believes they should control everything. We've got a government that believes they can run businesses better than the private sector. Uh, and But the reality is that we've got a government with really bad policies. We've got a government that is, in many instances, simply incompetent and running these sort of things. And quite often, we've got a government that's, that's corrupt. So, no, I think it's got to do with ideology, and I don't think we should try to save uh, the post office. What is probably going to happen to the post office is exactly what has happened to South African Airways already, and it came to an end. We're waiting for South African Airways uh, to enter into some sort of privatization deal, and that seems to be uh, going nowhere either. So, no, I think the best answer here is that the, the, the taxpayer, certainly I as a taxpayer, don't want my money to be thrown off to the post office. Darby, of course, there might be some advantage in a trimmed down mechanism, though. So for instance, um, you have a lot of SASA grants being paid in rural areas. Uh, for some no. people, it does surely uh, add some benefit to their lives or not. No. In the case of the Sasa grants, for instance, you can get it at many of these uh, pick and pay. You can go to pick and pay and you can get your Sasa grant there as an example. But the post office already indicated and part of the business plan or the rescue plan is that they will stop paying the Sasa grants in any event. So the Sasa grants is not a reason for that. And it's much easier, it's much cheaper, much more efficient to get your grants at uh, some of these retail stores in any event. So Sasa grants is not a reason for that. But you're right, many people will lose their jobs, which is really unfortunate, especially in an environment where the economy is just not growing. But that's what you get if you get the mismanagement of state-owned enterprises. People eventually do lose their jobs, and that's what's happening today. And that is what is going to happen to, to Eskom as well and what's going to happen to Transnet as well. They are Because of the mismanagement of those institutions, people are going to lose their jobs and that's what happens mm. if you mismanage institutions like these so the post office is coming back and saying it has now a shift in focus towards other revenue streams like bulk mail hybrid mail motor vehicle licensing no. services but again none of that makes an enormous amount of sense from a large revenue generating perspective does it no, it's not going to work. Uh, and you have to start competing with the, with the private sector. Uh, look, for example, at the motor car licenses. In my, my, what I do to get a motor car license, I, I, I've, got, I've got somebody that delivers it at my, at my office, for example. I don't even go into a, to the post office or anywhere to get a license like this. And many of the other things, like, for example, bulk delivery of, of posts, as an example, the private sector is doing that already. I know it's illegal in many instances for a private sector to deliver a post, but the private sector is doing that in any event. Because because the post office is simply not working. And now if the post office wants to come back and start uh, competing with the private sector, the private sector is so far ahead, I don't think they will be able to establish a proper business after this. And there you have it. Darby Root, thank you very much indeed. MoneyWeb at Midday, for all your up-to-date stories.
All right, let's switch now from the post office to politics and well-known social justice activist Mark Hayward is moving into the political realm as he plans to join former banker Roger Jardine to form a new what is being termed a political movement. Eventually, I guess it will become a party. It is, though, you will concede a very crowded space. Hayward is calling the move a justified risk. So Mark Hayward, who joins us now on the program, what exactly does that mean? (laughs) Well, I'm making this move because I'm intending to carry into politics the same issues and agenda that I've been fighting for for 30 years, which is fundamental human rights, particularly on issues such as access to healthcare services, equality and respect for our constitution and rule of law. I'm also making the move partly because I feel that we are at such a critical juncture in South Africa where, you know, civil society organizations campaigning on the periphery of politics and of government are no longer being listened to. So even though they have very good ideas which could better people's lives, those ideas are being left out in the cold. So... You know, when I was approached by Roger Jardine, who is a figure I have great respect for and who I think has the necessary experience to disrupt existing politics and recenter effective government, I thought very, very carefully about it and after careful thought decided that however big the mountain may be, it is something that I should seek to undertake with a team of people. Mark, you'll concede it's a very crowded space at the moment. Lots of people throwing their hat into the ring. That's right, Jeremy. I mean, it's a crowded space because that's democracy. And I think a lot of people are throwing their hat into the ring in reflection of the fact that everybody knows this is a critical election and there's deep, deep, deep dissatisfaction linked to fear of what happens if we allow the existing political elites and particularly the ANC and some of the other parties to continue to govern uncontested. I expect, Jeremy, you know politics. I expect that the field will clear in the months ahead. I hope that there will be alliances built based upon values. And I seriously hope that the Roger Jardine movement, for want of a better word at the moment, it, it will have a proper name, is something that can create hope and come up with very, very serious, practical, real solutions to our many problems. Mm. I don't underestimate for one second the fact that it's difficult. The key word or words there are alliances and, I guess, internal coalitions, because you'll also concede the sp- area is very fragmented at the moment you know the moonshot pact one south africa rizam zanzi the list goes on and on the difficulty for all of you is to try and adopt and implement some sort of cohesive strategy if that's the intention that's right and uh i i think that should be an objective because i think we need to have a values-based politics and i think we need to have a politics that is centered on public interest and the constitution rather than just narrow party political interests. And if that type of politics can emerge, and if a politics that is not laden with hypocrisy and hidden agendas can emerge, then we have a shot at writing 
uh, South Africa. Do you think there's an appetite for that new type of politics that you talk about? Were people just so apathetic, frustrated and angry at the moment that they've uh, almost given up? And I'll tell you why I ask you that question. I've been looking at a report from the Human Sciences Research Council that is yep. suggesting that 80%, you would have seen it yourself, 80% of young South Africans are simply not interested in voting next year. Yeah, I don't think the word is apathy. I think the word is alienation and distrust. And that is very, very worrying. I've seen that report as well. And when people de-link from government and de-link from democracy, it's a very dangerous moment for any society. And it opens the door to populist movements and other forms of insidious political movement. Jeremy, I, I, I think that people are open, having said that. I don't think it's a contradiction to say that if something came along that struck the right note, that was believable, that was seen to have integrity, that people would support it. You know, there are, are 14 million or maybe 13 million now people who haven't even registered to vote. You know, that's indicative of the fact that they don't believe what is out there at the moment. So, so yes, it, it's, I mean, you know, you asked me at the start, a justifiable risk. I see this as a risk. It's, it's a high stakes game. But what is at stake is the future of our democracy at the end of the mm. day. There are no guarantees of success when you undertake something like this. Mark Hayward, you'll concede that politics is all about optics. Um, how are you going to succinctly articulate a message of trust and integrity? Well, I, you know, I believe I'm a person who is trusted. I, I believe I've lived a life and people know what I stand for after observing me for, for, for 25 years in struggles around HIV, in struggles around access to quality healthcare services, to basic education against corruption. And not one bit of that am I changing. As I said, as all I'm doing is making a political decision about, well, what do you need to do now if we are truly to advance that human rights agenda? And, you know, Jeremy, it's not about me. I don't see myself as at the front of this campaign. Roger Jardine is the person who has initiated it, instrumentalized it. I, as I've always been, I intend to be a foot soldier, but foot soldiers must also be people who are honest and truthful. And I do intend to work very, very hard intellectually in trying to put together a program and plan based upon what I know are the solutions that are being thrown up in many, many areas of civil society, but which are being deliberately overlooked and ignored at the moment. Your next step is to register a political party, I imagine. I think that that obviously will be a next step because it has been announced that this is a political party project and that the, you know, all eyes are on the 2024 election and the objective is to win power. I mean, the objective is to win power. Simple as that. I don't see this as an oppositional movement. I see it as a movement to take power back to where it belongs in the constitutional project. Mark Haywood, thank you very much indeed. You're listening to MoneyWeb at Midday. Well, finally, ESCOM has a new leader. Dan Morakani is set to be appointed as chief executive officer at the utility. 
By way of background, currently top dog at the troubled sugar producer Tongart Hewlett and was previously head of Group Capital at ESCOM. MoneyWeb's deputy editor, Seren Naidu, is working that story for us. Uh, Seren, before we get to the uh, ESCOM side of the equation, just looking at where he's currently working, uh, Tongart Hewlett owes uh, the sugar industry billions of rands in levies. Uh, it is under consideration as far as business rescue is concerned. doesn't exactly fill one with confidence, does it? It doesn't, uh, Jeremy. Thanks for the opportunity and uh, good afternoon to the listeners. Um, but a word of caution, um, Dan Murakane has been with Tonga for about five years and he came in post the accounting scandal. So he's not linked to the history of Tonga uh, directly. Um, so, um, you know, uh, a lot of people are almost uh, saying he's going from one uh, uh, sinking ship to another, but uh, he has uh, the credentials, um, and one also needs to note that he took on the Tongat Unit uh, CEO acting role by default after Gavin Hudson mm. uh, resigned earlier this year, and um, uh, only after that did Tongat go into business rescue. Another thing is that he handles in the role, he handled the day-to-day running of Tongat Hewlett as far as I understand. The actual BR uh, business rescue negotiations and that sort of thing, he won't be directly involved. In effect, the business rescue practitioners are running the show at Tongat Hewlett and not um, Dan himself, if you uh, simplify the whole thing. Let's look at uh, the ESCOM side then. Uh, it really has taken a long time for them to appoint a chief executive officer and that leadership vacuum has not been a satisfactory one. It hasn't, but uh, it is a state-owned uh, enterprise and you know how uh, political these positions can be, especially post the state capture years. Um, also, um uh, the Department of uh, Public Enterprises has been accused on a number of occasions of uh, maybe interfering too much in the processes uh, of boards. So um, it's not easy for a board or a CEO to operate uh, in a state-owned enterprise in South Africa. Um, considering how um, um, Andrew Dureta, Andre Dureta rather left ESCOM, uh, I suppose uh, both the ESCOM boards as well as the Department of Public Enterprises and in fact the ANC as well don't mm. want to find egg on their face by having another situation like that. Seren, given that we don't have a long time for this interview, I'm nervous about asking you the next question, but his immediate priorities once he takes up the role as chief executive officer, I mean, that's a long list, isn't it? Where does he need to start? Well, ordinary South Africans will want uh, load shedding to be sorted, and it's not going to be sorted in the next year. But he needs to be honest with South Africa and South Africans, in addition to interacting with government and all the other stakeholders in the whole ESCOM uh, uh, situation. But um, it's not going to be easy at all. I think uh, he might have a bit of support from ESCOM in considering his history in ESCOM. I think he spent just over five years at ESCOM between 2010 and 2015, and it was in a capital role, so probably around CapEx. Um, So he will have some history and clearly uh, some insiders 
um, know that he would be a, a good candidate having a little bit of history, uh, having worked there before. Siren, do you think it's going to be tough for him to manage his relationship with the state, particularly with the public enterprises minister and the new electricity minister? Uh, the latter particularly has a, a very high profile at the moment. It's definitely not going to be easy. In Bloomberg's speculative report, as it were, because it hasn't been officially confirmed Indeed. and um, Dan is not uh, answering the phone to confirm anything just yet. But um, ESCOM has had like uh, 14 CEOs or leaders in the last uh, decade and a half. So it's definitely not going to be easy. But he has some interesting support. Uh, Ahead of this interview, I I checked his name was bandied about as far back as um, May, I think. And uh, um, even Solidarity uh, mentioned way back then that they would support him coming into the role. And it's almost like an unlikely quarter to get a support considering Solidarity's, uh, you know, who Solidarity represents. Um, So... In addition, when I shared the story last night, uh, a senior uh, market analyst, uh, Craig Cradish, uh, responded to my tweet saying that uh, he's a good guy and it's a good choice, uh, but uh, he won't take cuck, as it were. So I don't know. With government, you have to toe the line a little bit, unfortunately, if you're in that position, because as I said, they wouldn't want to have a situation where, um, you know, he's talking to the media without bouncing anything off government, you know. Uh, it's unfortunate how it has to work, but it is a parastatal. Siren Naidu is MoneyWeb's deputy editor. Thank you very much indeed. You're listening to MoneyWeb at Midday. Now, a follow to a story that we had uh, last week. The chief of the South African National Defense Force has now denied the existence of a so-called torture squad within the force itself. You'll remember that the NGO Open Secrets produced a report, uh, a detailed report, implicating at least four units of the SANDF in crimes dating to 2019. It said at the time there are elite special forces uh, operating within the firmament itself. From Open Secrets, uh, let's continue with the story now. Henny van Fieren, welcome. And how credible do you think the SANDF's denial is of the existence of the so-called death squad, given that when we spoke last, the gravity and specificity of the allegations that were made were were fairly intense? Jeremy, good afternoon. Welcome to the listeners. Um, I think firstly, we'd welcome welcome the fact that the SANDF finally decided to address the media, um, we have tried to contact and repeatedly for comments on our most recent investigations published in the Daily Maverick, as well as a documentary which uh, Carte Blanche produced last weekend. The SANDF simply refused to respond and now comes out, frankly, with uh, three generals sitting in front of cameras for an hour and a half yesterday and spinning about and claiming that, A, we have fabricated evidence, and secondly, uh, we, we have not, uh, we, you know, we've incriminated ourselves potentially by not reporting that evidence to the authorities. Now, those are unfortunately both baseless uh, statements, and it was a trend we saw right throughout yesterday's uh, press statement from from uh, General Mpanya and, and his colleagues. Uh, the evidence that we have uh, and we presented is from whistleblowers. It is from sources within the SANDF and elsewhere. And what we know in the instances when it comes to the torture squad uh, that we've spoken about is um, one individual, Pule and Como, 
has in fact brought a civil claim against the SANDF, cited the SANDF who have responded in court papers. So the chief of the SANDF must be well aware of this matter. And the other instances, um, the internal whistleblowers had, we believe, brought these matters to the attention of a board of inquiry that the chief of the SANDF appointed, headed by Brigadier Moorhouse, and who has considered that uh, information and tabled a report which is lying on the desk of the chief of the SANDF gathering dusk and which he has not made public. So, you know, such inconsistencies, um, such vacuous statements, unfortunately, we saw from the chief yesterday, it suggests he does not have the desire to grapple with a problem in his house, and that is the allegation of abuse, including by the chief of the army and others, um, and particularly of special forces, which he, of course, headed at some point in his earlier part of his career within the military. So let me just get this right. It has elements of, of, of the allegations have been pro, pro, probed previously. A report has been delivered, but there was no promise yesterday uh, from the Chief of the Defence Force saying that uh, there will be a, a further investigation or at least a look at uh, the allegations that have been raised. Of that, there was nothing. There was absolutely nothing that came forward. There was an argument to be made that that, uh, at least the argument was presented that this, this board of inquiry report we mentioned is being studied by the SANDF. Well, we know that's kicking the can forward. Uh, another, uh, another, another point to put forward repeatedly that a number of these matters are what are termed subjudicate, which we know that's where the powerful go to hide when they're too scared to answer to the public on matters that are very much and centrally of public interest. Let me, you know, to add, I think something that, that worries me greatly there were ridiculous comments that the chief made yesterday about the, the chief of the SANDF that uh, that there are bad apples in the SANDF and he blames the, the mothers and fathers for raising their children poorly, speaking like some principal in a in a in a in a uh, at a high school parent teachers meeting. But, you know what he did say yesterday as well is that where there are instances of wrongdoing, those matters must simply be reported uh, so that they can be investigated. Well, let's remind the chief of the SANDF that General Franz, uh, General uh, Colonel Franz Matipa, rather, the, one of the top Hawks officials who was investigating these special forces units for their alleged involvement in crime, um, was assassinated in August while on the road out investigating special forces. And um, we have every reason to believe that uh, that special forces should be investigated. Therefore, the SANDF should be investigated for the, for the assassination of Franz Matipa. And so, you know, I think there's a lot of glib statements that were made with very little substance. Um, and, uh, and I think that, you know, not I think, I think it, we, we certainly can see from this that the military is, is not willing to clean up its own house. We had anticipated and hoped that that is the message that the chief of the SNDF would give yesterday. We've now turned to the politicians. We've written to President Cyril Ramaphosa yesterday to say, as uh, the country's top politician and commander-in-chief, he must intervene in this matter and, uh, and ensure that there's a speedy inquiry so that uh, the, these, you know, the, the, so the, the elements, the criminal elements, and even if they're at the top, top uh, sort of end of the top brass of the, of the SANDF must be dealt with. And we have as well, Jeremy, written to uh, UN Special Rapporteurs for torture and extrajudicial killings yesterday and asked them to independently investigate uh, the claims that we've put forward so that pressure is put on the authorities in our country and we've alerted the president to that action as well. So just one more quick question from me. Um, first of all, what in your opinion would construe an effective and credible investigation and would you be prepared to... Uh, assist in that investigation or at least provide evidence should you be asked to do so? 
So I think I think certainly an, an independent investigation, something that is led by a judge that is not a long-winded, but is not seen to be a long-winded uh, commission of inquiry, would be an it would be an extremely helpful process. I think that the NPA would need to be involved right up front and the Hawks for that matter, so that we'll be looking at a process of potentially swift uh, uh, investigation and prosecution to ensure that this isn't again a, an attempt to cover up uh, these crimes. The, the people that are implicated, the bodies that are implicated, these are not ordinary folks. They are some of the, high, the, mo- the best trained uh, uh, soldiers in the country, or they certainly are the best trained soldiers. There's every reason for us to ensure that they act within the framework mm. of the Constitution. Otherwise, they are a danger to all of us. And quite frankly, they are a danger to the political class as well. Henny van Furen, thank you very much. MoneyWeb at Midday, for all your up-to-date stories. Let's finish the Friday program with this. And you know well that campaigning season is underway when political leaders visit marginal areas and opposition parties pile on the criticism. Yesterday, President Ramaphosa returned to the Free State for a fourth time uh, since 2022. And uh, poor and marginalized residents are yet to see the fruits of his visit, claim the Rise Mzanzi Party. State or Free State convener is uh, Nomsa Machesi, who joins us now. So you claim that the president's visits have not resulted in tangible improvements. What specific outcomes or changes did you expect? Uh, good afternoon, Jeremy, and good afternoon to your listeners. Uh, you know, the, as you said, as you said in your opening, that the president has been several times uh, in the free state. And I think, if you recall, this could be the only president since our democracy that has visited a province like Ramaphosa has visited the free state. And despite the fact that, you know, every time he goes on on saying that, you know, the people have no services, they have no electricity, they have no water, proper water that is suitable for for human uh, consumption. Um, And the fact that there's so much corruption, uh, but he still comes back and goes through the same, same kind of speeches and actually not delivering any solutions. So again, my my question to you is what what would your expectation have been? Our expectation is that, you know, to be able for him to come up and say, ever since I've been a president of a country, these are the issues that I've identified within the free state. And these are the measures that are put in place to ensure that those, there are kind of interventions that are come to, to deal with the issues that, you know, that you have raised when I came for the first time. You say the first time, I mean, like he's coming for the first time. So you should be able to have some kind of a report to say, like, uh, what is it that we have done as the African National Congress? Congress, What interventions have worked? I'll give you an example. For instance, when you talk about Mangaung uh, Metro, Mangaung Metro is under national administration. Um, it's been under administration since 2019. The first one was monetary intervention, and, and then it became financial recovery uh, uh, intervention. And now we are on, as you know, on the national administration. And nothing has happening in Mangaung. I mean, the only thing, the only testament that Mangaung is a metro is the fact that they have 9 billion rand as their budget. That's the only thing. If you walk within Mangaung, nothing has changed. The right. roads are still the same, still no water. So what we wanted to say, given the fact that this is the end 
of his um, his his presidency. Now we're going into the new elections in 2024. What is it that is done? What is it that is working on? What is it achieved? Instead, what you are telling people is that uh, I'm, I've given you 350. The national, the African National Congress has given you 350. Um, grant and therefore you know many people have started businesses with that i mean that, that is that's what he should have done but we all know that uh, politics is never about that so let me ask you one final question then you've criticized unfulfilled promises what measures then would Raisa Mzanzi propose to better hold political leaders accountable for commitments they make during campaigning i think we're saying that the only way out of this crisis of leadership is an election to replace the unsuitable, incapable, and uncaring leaders. Well, we have an election next year to do that, don't we? Exactly. That's what we're doing. We're saying that's what we're saying to the people is that now we are, we are enough of having this kind of unethical and uncaring leaders that really don't care about the poor. Because that's that's what we are seeing over and over again. I mean, that's what happened yesterday was basically a testament of of that, the fact that he doesn't care about what the people, their lives and the livelihoods of the people, uh, but he just comes back to tell them like, you know, I understand that you have problems with unemployment and basically agitate everything that they know about their situation without bringing any All solutions. Right. All right. So we Nomsa need to I'm going to I'm going to leave it there at that point. Unfortunately, you are out of time, but I think you have made the point. Uh, she is the uh, free state convener of the Rise Mzanzi party. Just before we go, other stories on our radar. The uh, ANC president, uh, Cyril Ramaphosa, is to potentially intervene in the 100 million rand standoff between Ezzelwini Investments and the party. And the United Nations Security Council is to meet under growing pressure from the Secretary General and is to vote on an immediate ceasefire. MoneyWeb at midday. We are live at noon weekdays. Then we are up as a podcast. Have a good weekend. Thank you for listening and goodbye.